You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Welcome to Trowers and Hamlins Smart City podcast series. My name is Amadeep Gill, and I'm a partner here at Trowers and Hamlins commercial team. Today, we're speaking about the urban landscape of a smart city, and I have the pleasure of being joined by Martin Prince Parrot. Welcome, Martin. Thanks for having me, Amadi. That's my absolute pleasure. So, Martin is an award winning architect and design manager for the innovative mixed use developer Black Swan Property. During Martin's studies, he's focused on sustainable development, data driven eco design, advanced timber construction, and passive house skyscrapers. His design work earned him two design awards and a feature in the Architects Journal. After almost a decade in architectural practice, Martin was driven into property development by the realisation that a seed of an amazing place is planted at the beginning of the development process, not in the design process. Martin's two big passions are healthy cities and inclusivity, and his work has earned him local and national recognition. So as I say, welcome, Martin. Um, really broad um, topic for us to look at in terms of urban design and smart cities and I wanted to kick off with uh, a question about just going back to the basics. Mm. Um, What do you think the role is of urban planning in smart cities? I think that's a good question. Uh, I think it really depends on the way that the smart city is created. So uh, there there are two ways it can be created. It can either be uh, effectively a retrofit, mm. so um, the the upskilling and the upgrading of technology within existing cities, so uh, Birmingham, London, Manchester, yeah. um, Rome, Paris, or there are other examples of completely new cities um, which have been conceived with the technology in mind. So, yeah. uh, what's put aside as Mazda in in the Middle East. Um, from what I understand, I think it is uh, uh, Honda who are looking at a, a smart or micro city um, from the ground up that yeah. they use to, ex- to experiment and, and really sort of get under the skin of how people live. And from what I understand, there have been uh, proposals by, by Google and some of the other tech companies to do a similar thing. So um, the urban design in an existing city would it would have to take the form of Optimization. Yeah. So um, it's not a Buddha Rasa, you can't just do whatever you want. You need to look at what you can do, uh, what you need to do, um, and what you'd also probably like to do, mm. and work within those confines because as good as smart cities or the incredible potential that smart cities have uh, will be undermined if existing cities and the qualities that make them up are disrupted. Yeah. Uh, through the implementation. So, um, whereas with the brand new cities, um, there's a lot more scope, um, but one would argue there's perhaps more risk as well. What, what do you mean by that more risk? So, technology is increasing, uh, uh, from what I understand, uh, beyond exponential rate mm. at present. So, if you have uh, an entire fabric of a city which is um, based on technology of its time, yeah, that technology becomes redundant. Does that city become redundant? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, some of what makes our cities special is the 
layering over time mm. of different periods of architecture, uh, different road systems, uh, the heritage and character and narrative yeah. of certain places. So in Birmingham, you have the Joy Quarter. Um, they are part of the fabric of a city, even if they're not uh, physical, they bear a re- uh, relationship to the physical. If you have a brand new city, what is the story? What is the history? What is the heritage? Mm. Um, and why are the roads that way? I think, in my experience, um, people can can have less patience with something that's brand new because yeah. their expectation is that it's brand new, so therefore it should perform exceptionally well yeah. um, from the first day, whereas they tend to be a bit more patient about the idiosyncrasies of existing cities. So whether it's the narrow streets of, of Paris or the cobbled roads in London or or the, the sort of extraneous or, or strangely located ruins in Rome. Mm. Um, we find a way to live around those things because we understand that um, it's part of history and it's part of heritage. If it's brand new, um, their patience might not be there. I know there are instances in China where they've built um, really quite large cities, or almost full-blown cities, um, to very high standards. Um, and they aren't always particularly well-populated. That's really interesting. And from, do you think it's possible in those two examples of retrofitting a smart city mm. and then creating a, a, a smart city from the ground ground mm. up, or not necessarily the ground mm. up, will it? Yeah. You know, um, do you think it's inherently more difficult to do a retrofit smart city? And can a retro smart city truly be smart mm. because you've got so much legacy there mm-hmm. um, that you can't get rid of or optimize in some way? Mm. I think. Uh, we need to unpack slightly what we mean by smart. Mm. So my understanding of smart uh, is really expressed in two ways. Uh, smart as as in responsive. Yeah. So um, so the city is responding to the needs of its populace, um, but then also smart in the sense that it records um, and that. Uh, that information, that data, is used as um, effectively the foundation which decisions are made. So I think a smart city, in my mind, first and foremost, is a city that has processes and systems that allow it to make smart decisions yeah. for its people. And and those decisions will vary. I mean, I think it is important when we talk about smart cities. Not every smart city will look or function the same because yeah. the population requirements are different. The geography is different, the climate is different. Um, and also, more now, we're almost seeing a renaissance of cities. You know, So once upon a time, city-states were um, the primary form of uh, arrangement from yeah. a political perspective. And then uh, in the 20th century, it was more about countries and nation-states. Uh, I think the city-states uh, and cities are starting to take a more global role. Yeah, absolutely. And they're starting to have relationships between themselves mm. uh, in a way, sometimes alongside existing national relationships uh, and sometimes in spite of yeah. them um, because they know, uh, depending on how localist you are, they understand effectively what they need but also what they can offer. Yeah. And I think that is really understanding what your city can do. The need and what you can offer is, is what you take to market and why you go to market in the first place. So looking at that kind of very um, city-centric and 
uh, you know, a global city, but mm. it's populated by people. Mm. You know, uh, the success of the city is down to whether it's a popular place to live and people want to congregate there and live there and mm. have their economic and, mm. and private lives there. Mm. And when we're creating these very citizen-centric spaces, which I think is, mm-hmm. you know, the prerequisite, mm-hmm. how can this be done? And from your perspective, with your kind of he- uh, your legacy in architecture mm-hmm. and property development, how do you make these citizen-centric places uh, work? And are there some really good examples that you've come across? Sure. So first and foremost, can you make a citizen-centric city? I think it's an interesting question because I think you can. Hmm. What's required is a service mindset first. Yeah. So a city is only as good in terms of how it provides sort of three kinds of criteria. So so what its population needs, what its population wants, uh, and what its population has to have. Um, and that's shifting sands in some ways. Um, but as I'm moving through my career as a, as a city professional, um, anthropology is playing a much larger role mm. in how I understand the behaviour of people yeah. in terms of what they want uh, and what they need and what their aspirations are. Um, and underpinning anthropology is empathy. Yeah. And so it's possible that some of the brand new smart cities will be conceived by AI, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that'll be interesting to see. But I'm almost certain that a human being will be better able to understand the requirements of a human being. Um, and that's not fixed. So understanding what children need, understanding what teenagers need, understanding what working age people, parents need, and then what the elderly need, um, and what whether you're abled or disabled, uh, I think it really does require um, a lot of empathy. Mm. So, uh, so your question, how would you go about creating those places? Uh, I'd say the first thing you need to do is listen, mm. uh, watch, observe, look at what's working, uh, not just looking at what's not working. Um, ring fence what is working Mm. try and protect that because that will be unique to that place Um, people may have gotten used to it Um, and try and see if there are ways of um, improving the way the city is working for uh, for the citizens Um, but in a way that you might just have to experiment Mm. I think dealing with something as complex as a city, because it's, it's, a city is very much like a computer. It's got hardware and it's got software. Yeah. Uh, the people, the culture, the heritage are very much the software. Yeah. Um, a computer is useless without its software, however good the hardware might be. Uh, but similarly, uh, certain software needs its hardware to, to perform to a certain level. So um, a lot of the interventions that might be required to make a citizen-centric city may be soft. They might be policy based yeah. rather than physical or be in the built environment. Other situations, it may be interventions within the built environment that need to happen. Mm. But in these cash-strapped times, um, I think listening, observing, and experimenting with policy, experimenting with closing roads, uh, which is quite easy to do. You know, you've got some plants along the road and some signage, and, and you can start to see and observe 
um, how people will fill that space or not fill that space. Yeah. How much disruption it causes elsewhere in the network. Mm. Um, and take it from there, I believe that that's something that they did in New York, Times Square. Yeah. Where they expanded the area where, where people could congregate and be and observe and see and, and sort of take in, take in the city at that point. Uh, and after they did it as an experiment, they thought, well, the reception has been incredible. The problems it's caused have been relatively minimal. Mm. Um, it's worth it. Yeah. Not painless. I don't think anything's painless. Um, but it's about seeing what it means on balance. Um, and there may come a time when that decision is undone mm. because the needs have changed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the point I was going to raise because, you know, it's time specific. Mm. Everything that you can do from a city planning perspective is contextually driven by what that cultural narrative 100%. is at a moment in time. And as we are seeing, um, you know, that cultural narrative changes um, on a daily basis, not only because of things that are happening on a local level, but mm. geopolitics at a mm. global level impact how we feel yes. and what we think we need. Yep. Um, and it's really important to have that flexibility in space mm. and urban design yep. um, as we move move through, you know, periods and we're hopefully, hopefully creating cities that have a, a longevity to them. Mm. I really think it's about friction. Mm. The ease with which you do or use something will, it tends to map directly to how much you enjoy doing or using that thing yeah. uh, and how likely you will do or use that thing. Um, so I know many people in Birmingham who won't drive because it's not easy and it's difficult. Mm. Um, they're not necessarily shouting from the rooftops with regard to how much they enjoy the public transport network either. Um, but there is an opportunity there to make the, uh, the mass transit experience better, smoother, with less friction, and therefore probably more popular. And that's the case in cities. So I was having a conversation with an engineer just yesterday, and the metaphor I use is that when you start your day, on the assumption you've had a decent night's sleep, you haven't gone out, gone, gone out on the wrong side of the bed, um, you start your day at zero. And then from that point, your your life and your experiences either give you a plus in terms of uh, your well-being, enjoyment, personal index, or they give you a minus. And cities are a massive part of that. As you move through the built environment, if you've got road closures, uh, a difficult to read urban environment, uh, lots of advertising signage noise, um, it's crowded, uh, the air's not great, uh, Minus, 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 minus. And this is all before you get into the office. Yeah, absolutely. Um, your office, as part of the built environment, could play a massive role in giving you lots of pluses. So lots of natural daylight, um, great colour, biophilia in the form of plants, um, a really positive culture, um, time out, uh, while oiled systems, and the ability to communicate as and when and you have a frictionless environment there and so that gives you all of your pluses and then so you end the day being the net sum of all of your experiences now if you're if the built environment can give you more pluses than minuses then on the whole it'll probably give you the reserves to deal with more difficult things that life has done that's really interesting and and in creating these environments um 
apart from our imaginations, Martin, mm. what do you think is limiting our ability to create these wonderful spaces that you're talking about, both mm. you know, externally in terms of uh, our real-world experience of travelling within a city and mm. you know, the infrastructure, the buildings that we use? Mm. Um, where are those limitations? I think there's a few. I think you touched on something with imagination. Mm. Um, I wouldn't quite say it was imagination. I would say, so there's a mixture of things. So if we talk about the UK specifically, the UK is the procurement process of, of development brings together quite often really fantastic, hardworking individuals who've all trained for, for really long periods to, to get to where they are. Um, but as a result, there are more silos. Yeah. So I lead the design team. Um, if I'm managing five consultants, they all speak five different languages and I speak the the equivalent of Latin. Yeah. Which means I can I can communicate with all of them but they can't communicate with each other yeah. necessarily. Uh, I try and gen- engender that as much as I can, but quite often the architect or de- depending on the skill set of the developer is a mediator um, and goes about trying to assemble almost like a jigsaw to create what is the full mm. picture. If we had more cross disciplinary people, so my background is as, as a chartered architect I'm now working in development um, I have two hats and for the most part I can see 80 to 90 percent of the picture as a result if we had more professionals who crossed over in different ways I think that would benefit the Bill environment in, in, in all kinds of ways because there's just more harmony within the teams which are creating the places where we live and work so that's one part there's another part I'm interested in I'm, I'm trying to research for for my book, which is the role that effectively being orientated towards nature. Mm. So, um, so part of my research, part of my thesis, is that it's based on first understanding how biophilia works. So, biophilia is is the uh, phenomenon of of human beings feeling more relaxed than there being positive biological responses to greenery. So that is less stress, faster healing, uh, more positive mental disposition, mindset, um, really quite strong, strong and well-researched indicators with regard to how well human beings respond to nature. So then the question becomes, if we accept that we're natural beings and we respond well to nature, why does our built environment look so different from the natural world? My personal thesis is that it has something to do with intent and it has something to do with culture mm. so uh, so I believe that culturally we have gotten into the habit of of not recognizing the value of natural assets yeah it's just not part of the calculation uh, it's starting to come back but it's not part of the calculation and and I don't think it's a matter of CPD mm. although it would help uh, I think it's much larger I think as a society within the UK, um, nature matters a great deal to us. This is why we're so protective about the green belt. Yeah. But it stops at the green belt. Mm. We love the green belt for the fact that it's natural, it's our heritage, uh, it's part of our, our culture, um, and part of our identity. Indeed. So why, why constrain it to the outer reaches of our cities? Why does the green belt not come in? and there be green tentacles. 
And I think I like that green tentacles. Yeah. So, and I think that separation, that sort of duality and understanding, is what's holding us back. So, one of the things I I proposed in a presentation to the RTPI was the idea of celebrating seasons. Yeah. Uh, or celebrating natural assets, or celebrating both. So, sort of pre-Christianity and pagan times, it's quite common for, uh, or at least it was quite common to celebrate the harvest or spring. Mm or summer, yeah. uh, or winter festival, which is what we call Christmas now. Mm. Um, that's something that you, I think, you can do, and it's something that the Swedish do very well. So in Sweden, they celebrate midsummer, yeah. and as a result, um, they enjoy it so much. You know, they're a modern, progressive, forward-looking society. Um, they're not perfect, but, you know, they, they, they do quite well. And they have this big celebration when people come together to celebrate nature, and recognize the place that human beings have in nature and the value it has to us. And they enjoy it so much that the most popular birthday in Sweden is, present, is precisely nine months after midsummer, <laughs> because that's when all the babies are born, because yeah. uh, they relax, they connect, they connect with each other, and they also connect with nature. And I, I would love to see festivals dedicated to our natural history and our natural heritage in cities as a reminder and I think over time my hope would be that when planning places within cities um, there may be a few more people within the team who think why don't we preserve that tree why don't we open up the river why don't we um, why don't we build a bit higher and and, and make a pocket park why don't we um, why don't we create more opportunities for the city and the residents they are residents um, or the tenants if it's if it's commercial uh, to engage with nature because we all know how important it is to us. Absolutely, and and I think you're starting to describe there what a, a perfectly designed urban space looks like for you, yeah. uh, and perhaps we can explore that a little bit further in terms sure. to give us a feel of what that could look like for us, mm. and indeed what we're missing now. Sure. Um, and so you know your views on that would be really great actually. Sure. So I've spoken quite a lot about. Um, the importance of responding to music. Mm. Um, undoubtedly, one of the things that have changed our society so much has been the advent, uh, and in some ways, the perfection of the smartphone. Absolutely. The reason why it's been so popular is, uh, if I refer back to my, my previous comment about friction. Friction with regard to your phone is actually quite low. Um, it, Again, the hardware is great, but the yeah. software is really what's making the difference. Yeah. It's the user interface. Yeah. So I believe that a well-designed city, healthy city, if you will, um, will have been conceived or, or adapted to operate like a user interface. So yeah. All the things that make a user interface successful. So it's easy to understand um, what you need isn't too far from where you, you would want it. Yeah. Um, Anything anywhere else is where you would assume it would be. It's customizable to a certain extent. So uh, if we extend the metaphor within city, it would be your ability to move from one place to another with relative ease, mm. uh, depending on what your requirements were. Um, and it gave back more than it took from you. Yeah. And so in an urban sense, that would be minimal friction, a decent amount of space, uh, plenty of green greenery so that could be trees uh, which is very useful uh, to help us fight climate change and carbon levels 
and also cleaning of the air or general shrubbery, bushes, that sort of thing. Um, variety, particularly a ground floor, so really active, vibrant ground floor. I think the jewellery is back on cars. They're not great. Yeah. They're a necessity, so I wouldn't necessarily demonise private transport, but they do make it harder to do the other things that we want to do in cities. So whether it's congregate, uh, whether it's have places for the children to play, whether it's even planning a development. Um, you know, so much of a development sometimes is taken up by car parking. Yeah. Um, and I think a secret ingredient which I think that these spaces would have would be delight and surprise. So I talk about user interfaces. I think that cities have the opportunity and ability to talk back in the same way that Siri might. Uh, to talk back to uh, its inhabitants um, and really try and positively reinforce our culture, our heritage, our shared civic responsibility Absolutely. and identity, um, but also to do things like make us laugh or remind us that we're not alone or remind us how lucky we are uh, to be able-bodied, for example. I think there's the scope. Because if, I mean, if we're being honest, a lot of that space is quite often taken up by advertising. So why would we not take back some of that advertising space and use it to make the residents of a place feel better about themselves, about where they live, um, and maybe inspire them to try and try and make it even better than it is. Thank you, Martin. I, I, I feel that I want to be part of these delightful, surprising and fun cities <laughs> that you're describing, and I hope we all are at some point in the future. Can I just thank you for your time, of course. for the fascinating Thanks conversation? And um, I look forward to future conversations. So thank you again. Thanks, Emily. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.